all the heroes have gone to hell. His work done, God's packing up to go home. And then he notices someone waiting. But it's not a hero, it's just a woman. Where did you come from? asks God. Oh, I was standing behind those other guys the whole time. You just didn't see me. Did I give you a talent? God asks. Nope. None to speak of, says the woman. God gives her a good, long look. The weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Wayne and Hannah. How's it going, guys? Hey, what's up? Do you want the truth, or do you want me to lie? Oh, this is every week. Okay, what horrible thing happened? <laughs> um. Okay, so it was the election last night. Yes. And Mississippi has a new governor. Mm-hmm. And you love him so much. No. <laughs> Yeah, I saw I saw that going down and and they, cause they were saying there could be an upset. And, and I was like, wow, Hannah, I actually was watching and go, Hannah, it's going to be really happy. And then like the upset started getting farther and farther away. <laughs> yeah, this has always been the election. I have like held out <laughs> that, you know what, maybe this is the what like literally the, this is the one time that things like could win and not just because the other option is just an out an out racist like Cindy Hyde Smith. This was <laughs> like, you know, Jim Hood's fairly popular in Mississippi, even though he's no like he's no progressive. No, um, he's not. But I mean like just but but like it's it Mississippi is like categorically one of the hardest states to vote in. I and Josh, both of whom have read legal documents for work, Josh of whom is a lawyer, think that the statutes about absentee voting are confusing. I have to get my ballot notarized and like show my ID as I vote and I have to vote in the presence of wow. a notary. Also, we have some of the harshest like felon like like laws mm-hmm. ever. So like there's actually like a lawsuit coming up in December to try and get felons their voting rights back. They're really, really harsh. Also, there's a voter ID law and we all know how that goes and why those exist. And even if Jim had won the popular vote, there is a Jim Crow era law that it's complicated. There's a chance that he wouldn't win because it would go to the House. So I, I feel like this is all to say Mississippi needs to do better and it should be easier to vote, not harder. Also, maybe Democrats shouldn't run candidates that are very pro-life and say horrible things to back up their sentiments, Jay Hughes. But whatever. You're I'm over it. it. It's fine. It sounds like it. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm never going to be over it. 
<laughs> and we shouldn't be over it. Uh, well, anyway, I, I might have to do another another politics show. I'm trying to figure out how, how do I do a clever segue here. I don't <laughs> actually like. I mean, these are issues embedded in the actual thing we're talking about. Yeah, that's true. That yeah. is true because you you even mentioned Jim Crow laws. So. The actual thing we're talking about, we're going to talk about Watchmen. You know, you'd think that given that me and Wayne are the comic book guys, you know, you'd think this would would be one of our ideas, but it wasn't. Hannah, this was your idea. This was your topic this week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The greatest regret I have about teaching Watchmen is that the new television show produced by Damien Lindelof was not available to teach with it. Mm -hmm. Because you watched it opening night. I didn't watch it till the next day. I DVR'd it. But I remember you watched it and then like you probably at like one in the morning you posted it. It's like we're doing a show on Watchmen. It was the best pilot ever ever filmed or something like that. Oscar the Lost which is a really good pilot whatever else you think about the show. And okay I'm going to say this three episodes in. Mm -hmm. Besides The Good Place perhaps instead of The Good Place Watchmen is currently the best show on television. No joke. Wow. Wow. And we do, we want to make this show about, uh, about the Watchmen TV show, but uh-huh. sort of a broader about the graphic novel and the, the prequels that they did and the movie. And I don't know, I'll talk about the RPG a little bit, maybe. Uh, we want, we, I have a copy of it sitting next to me right now. Yeah, we, we kind of want to talk <laughs> about the Watchmen phenomena, not any one specific piece of it uh, right. and how it fits together. Um, and to do so, we invited some specialists. <laughs> yeah, as always, we have guests. And so first, we will, for the first time, we will welcome to the show, uh, Travis Bow. Hey, Travis. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Travis, what's your expertise on Watchmen? Um, so I have completed my uh, podcast, Watchmen Minute, where we went through the director's cut of Zack Snyder's Watchmen one minute at a time, looking at every... You know, looking for every detail, looking at, at the movie in minute chunks. And um, yeah, that's that's my that's not my Watchmen history, but that is my uh, experience podcasting with Watchmen. And now that there's an HBO show about it, we're uh, talking about it one episode at a time. And also, I'd like to welcome to the show, Jim Dietz. Hey, Jim. Hello. It's great to be here. And you are also a Watchmen fanatic of I sorts. Am, uh, I am. Uh, I read it as it came out issue by issue when I was a freshman in college in 1986. Uh, back in 2008, the podcasting network that I founded or helped found uh, then the HHWLOD network, we did an issue by issue uh, breakdown of the comic Watchmen uh, leading up to the movie, uh, including a, a guest star, a young, scrappy young man by the name of Ed Piscor. Uh, was on our um, <laughs> uh, issue seven uh, recap, um, and the show culminated in an interview we did with uh, Dave Gibbons at New York Comic Con in uh, two thousand nine. Um, nice. And now, you know, ten, eleven years later, me and a couple of the other guys from that original podcast are plus uh, some new blood from the network are doing a week by week breakdown of each episode of the new show called We Watch Watchmen. So. And we will link to both of these podcasts in the, the show notes. So. Yeah. So we have returning guests to the show. We have Marcel Walker and uh, Marcel, what's your Watchmen podcast? <laughs> um, I, I, I still have to make it. I'll, I'll come up with a title for the end <laughs> of this session here. Uh, Watch my Watchmen. <laughs> but well, you asked to be on this week. Why? Oh, uh, well, you know, all, all comics feeds into all what I do. You know, I make comics. <laughs> And uh, Watchmen is one that I've referred to just 
more times than can be counted. Um, you know, and, and back in the day when I used to teach Eddie, you know, he was advanced enough that we, we talked about Watchmen even then. Like, it's just, you can't escape. Oh, totally. He, I mean, he was so insightful about it when we had him on the show. I mean, obviously, yeah. he's a very insightful dude, just in general. Mm-hmm. But you could tell he'd really studied it and poured over those pages. And he absolutely did. Absolutely. And, and now with the with the introduction of the show, um, you know, I've I've it's Watchmen's a work like when I, I guess I'm going to have to come up with a better way to differentiate between the two. But I'm just going to say Watchmen, the book is such an influential work. Like it's never gone out of my, you know, my my awareness. You know, I revisit mm-hmm. it every year, two years or so, and I'm always thumbing through it. But the, the introduction of this show, it, it has given me a new way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I admittedly am very enthused about what they're doing with it. And uh, any conversations about this, you know, I, I definitely want to be a part of. Because um, quite honestly, I kind of agree too that it's, it's, we'll say it's tied for being the best TV show on the <laughs> air right now. With, with Riverdale. Oh, Riverdale. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not starting any fights. <laughs> uh, well, so one of the things that I thought was interesting about this, and this is a story, Wayne, you've heard me tell. I was listening to another show. I won't name him. No reason to, but I was listening to another podcast that I enjoy. And they did an episode, you know, many podcasts have done this episode, which was, you know, let us ruminate over, you know, what are the 10 greatest comic books of all time? I mean, in a way, our syllabus show is is a version of that, right? When, when we do when we do a syllabus show. And they were doing what are the 10 greatest DC comic books of all of all time? And they were going back and forth. The hosts were sort of doing a round table and then they got to like number three or so. I don't know what number they were on, but they, it wasn't the number one, but then they got to like some number and, and the host. And by the way, both of the hosts of these of this show are both in their twenties. And w- one of the hosts said to the other one, well, for, for the third pick, you know, I'm going to go with Watchmen. Now I know what you're, what you're saying at home, but, but hold on because you know, you're probably thinking, well, that's an old book. It's dated. It's not really that great, but, but here's my reasoning for, for why I think Watchmen should be on this list. And I thought, and I'm listening to this going, it, it's because it's arguably the most important comic book ever written. Why is this a, why is this a debate? <laughs> you know, there's no, but, and they had, but it, but it was weird for me because I, well, Hannah, you are, but I'm not in my twenties and I'm like, why are, why is anyone, di- no one needs to justify this. You can just say, no, it's the greatest comic book. We all agree. <laughs> and, and that would be enough, but they felt the need to justify it. And I was just thinking, well, this is a very different generational thing where, you know, yeah. I'm in my forties. So it's obviously up there, but maybe for them, it's weird, but they, well, when I was in, when I, you know, you know how I got uh, introduced to Watchmen? No. Zack Snyder's movie. I was turning 18 in high school. It came out. I didn't know anything about it, except that it was like controversial. Mm-hmm. So obviously I was like, I'm going to use my privileges to go to this R-rated movie with my friends. <laughs> Watch this movie. All my friends were very mad at me because I took them to such a horrific <laughs> and violent movie. And like, to be fair. There's a lot of blue penis. I, I, well, like it wasn't just that. Like to be fair, um, none of us had any clue that the comedian tries to rape Silk Spectre, uh-huh. and you know that is not exactly what you expect if you've grown up reading Spider-Man, seeing X-Men yeah. movies, mm-hmm. like what's come before. Like it was really like before the dark grittiness was like super popular, mm-hmm. um, and also it's you know that kind of thing has like warnings for a reason. Um, 
which I guess is what the R rating is for. But <laughs> you will well, R eighteen. <laughs> well, and, and, yeah. and I wonder if that matters though, because like, so you would have been. I mean, you would have happened to have turned eighteen when the movie was coming out. So I imagine the friends that you're going with are all also 18 ish, right? Like you're yeah, 17, 18. So, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and like we, we had never read the mm-hmm. book. I didn't read the book actually till years later mm-hmm. uh, when I decided I'm going to teach it to get people to do my syllabus. And actually like you, if you just watch the movie, you do not realize how good the book mm-hmm. is because, yeah. and I think we've made this joke many times, despite being like a shot for shot remake in a lot of ways, it misses the entire yeah. point. Yeah. He doesn't, <laughs> Zack Snyder does not know what the story that he made is about. And I, and I don't, I, I, I've lightened on it a little bit from when it first came out. I hated it. I hated it the first time I've gone to appreciate it a little more than I used to, but I still think he doesn't understand the story he told. But think of all the other people who have misunderstood that story over the years. Like, yes, yeah. like I, all the fanboys who thought Rorschach was cool, you know? And like, yeah. like I remember reading Alan Moore saying that, you know, guys would come out, he doesn't do cons anymore. It's like back in the late 80s or whatever when he still did signings. These guys were coming up and saying, that Rorschach, that was me. And he's like, great, can you go over there now, you know? Because <laughs> I, I don't, don't want to be near you if that statement is true, you know what I mean? I mean, so yeah, many... He's very afraid of people who like Rorschach. He mm-hmm. continues to be very afraid of people who doesn't like who like don't like I mean no, like Rorschach. it's just it's funny too because in the new show they kind of go meta on that because the whole Seventh Cavalry takes the wrong message from Rorschach mm-hmm. yeah to justify yeah. their white supremacy and like the whole grim and gritty age of comics that spun out of Watchmen and Dark Knight and Born Again you know kind of took the wrong message from that writing not that you know everything had to be brutal and grim and gritty but that you know you could use the story for more than just you know Silver Age, you know, frolics and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people still uh, misread the story. I mean, uh, when Watchmen, the TV show premiered, I saw a lot of reviews say, you know, if I were thinking about someone who like was a white supremacist, I was thinking the comedian because of his like actions in Vietnam and not Rorschach. And I mean, yes, the comedian obviously like committed atrocities in Vietnam and it's very mm-hmm. obvious. But at the same either. time, Rorschach yeah, but, but like Rorschach is literally reading white supremacist yeah. mm-hmm. newspapers. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, the only comment really I want to make about the movie, and this isn't meant to be dismissive at all, it's actually kind of in praise of it. It's, I think the single biggest justification for the movie is the thing that kept people from wanting to make a movie in the first place. And you, st- you can, you read about this anytime you read about like what led into it is Watchmen, the, the text, the, the novel was considered unfilmable for the longest time. It was designed to be unfilmable. Yeah. That was one of the, that was one of their points. But I got it. I have to say, like, I, I've always felt that that designation kind of does a disservice to the actual narrative that Alan Moore wrote, the actual story, because to say that this is unfilmable also says that there is, to me, I, I interpret that as there is kind of no, the story itself cannot be interpreted to another medium. Now, mm-hmm. in my opinion, the only way that you have a story that's unfilmable is you have something that's unintelligible. So mm-hmm. the fact that this movie exists shows, no, there is a story that could be filmed. Be filmed. Yeah. You know, like, so the idea that the movie, you know, if you want, you know, the shot for shot thing, that's actually, I think that proves the point. There is a story mm-hmm. there that could be filmed and he was able to mm-hmm. film it. And you could watch that movie independent of the book and understand the story. Now, whether you think it's a good story or if it was told well, 
is a whole other separate thing. He, did tell to, story. he, he wrote it to be unfilmable in 1986. Uh, not necessarily. There's a lot of things that were unfilmable in 1986. Sure. Yeah. Like every, everything that came out of Kirby's brain. Uh, right. you know, which we've now filmed. Which we've now found a way right. to film, right. Yeah. Well, but I also, and I think um, I have very complicated feelings on Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not going to do a whole show on Alan Moore because that's four shows. It is Alan Moore. Yes, yeah, so that was Alan Moore. Um, in short, I think he is a genius. I also think he is a horrible person. And I also think he's a madman. But one of the things about Moore is he is very stuck on himself in, a, in, in many ways. And he, he really, like to say it's unfilmable is his way of saying, no, 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 my art is perfect. No one can interpret me. Sure. Anything you will do. Because he's literally said that about everything else that yeah. he's written too. He's, he feels that way about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And he was maybe right on that time. But except for not really, because you couldn't, you could very easily adapt League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Do it very well. They did a horrible sure, job yeah. of it. Sure. He said that about From Hell. From Hell is a very different story in the graphic novel than it is in the movie. Both are very good. From Hell, the movie is very, is very yeah. good. I, I enjoy it a lot. Um, and so changes were made. He doesn't like when people interpret his art. So that's the pro- that's more being more. Yeah. The problem with that is that he wanted to adapt, you know, Charlton characters for Watchmen. He wanted to adapt, you know, and tell stories about classic literature for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Right, I mean, right. He he it's OK for him to do those things. Yeah. But he, yeah, loses his mind if someone else wants to do that with him. Very inconsistent and yeah. when regarding his own work. Yes. So, I mean, I said in the blog post, I remember reading Watchmen in 1985, 86, whatever it came out. Um, I'm old, old enough to have done that. And Wayne, I know you've, you've said the same thing, which is you're reading it at a time when, you know, like Hannah talked about, you know, the com- the movies and stuff that she was seeing and the cartoons that she was seeing, you know, 20 years later. But at the time when I, when I was reading that, I was an avid comic fan and there was a very real feeling when reading this in 1986. That this is something very different. You knew that you were reading a comic book that was, I think, like Wayne, you put it, this changes everything. And it did. Like, you could tell that this is, this is not like any other comic book that's ever been made. Yeah. And it could, like, in reading that, you knew that it was going to change the way things appeared. So, basically, Alan Moore is crazy. You know, <laughs> that's my... <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> but, I mean, a genius. <laughs> sure. But, okay, so... We were talking about Watchmen, though, and Marcel, you even said, you know, it's hard because you in in your head, if you're a longtime fan, when you say Watchmen, you probably mean the book. But at this point, we've got a book, we've got a TV show, we've got a movie. Wayne, you mentioned, you know, we've got a role playing game. There's so much. They did prequels, the before Watchmen prequels. Um, Right. Current series called Doomsday Clock. So now at this point, Watchmen is a multimedia franchise that has spanned 30, almost 35 years, 34 years. And we can go into a lot of stuff about, and we've done it on the show before, talked about what makes something canon, what makes something, you know, death of the author, whether Moore's intentions matter so much. But why is this thing so enduring? Because I mean, it's not just... As a comic book nerd, I know everything changed in, in, you know, when this came out, but Mm. like as a, but it, it matters like Hannah, you were 18 and you start reading it, you know, or watching it. It, It's something that you want to see that, that like has this enduring power. We teach it in classes in college. I'm going to give a very 
probably oversimplified answer to this, but I think its staying power comes from the fact that it's it's a work of art done impossibly well, like so well that when you revisit it, regardless of what your entry point is, if you, you know, there's something specific if you are of an age that you remember when it came out and what the comics landscape was and what it did to that directly. But I think even if you came to it after, it's the original work is undeniably well done and it is very much a thing of its time, you know? So like, let's say if Watchmen had come out, you know, if that came out last year, but it was set in the same time period, it wouldn't have the same, it wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, also it's an, it's a work of art that was done incredibly well and it came out at exactly the right. Time. Okay. The thing that I found to be the case for me, uh, you know, we went through the, the movie one minute at a time. And in that process, like I had already read the book, you know, several times. Um, but of course, the book was my main source of information for background information, for references, you know, just to, you know, because I, I, I do feel Zack Snyder was so faithful to the source material. Um, but the thing that I found about the book, you know, r- going back through it again as a 36 year old this time, 35 at the time, whatever, is that I thought that the book changed. And, you know, it's not the it, reading it this time wasn't the same as when I first read it in my 20s or you know, whatever I was, 1920. Um, because you, because of your perspective, you know, if you're, you know, my life or my person I am is a little bit different than the person I was when I first read it. But so I understand characters a lot different now. When you first read it, you do kind of think, oh, this Rorschach is a cool character, you know, but the second time I were reading it in your 20s, that might be how you feel. But reading it in your 30s, in my case, it was like, oh, I, I, understand Dan a little bit more than I did the first time. And the first time I would have read it, you know, Dan, Dan seems kind of lame and just, you know, um, so I don't know, maybe next time I, if I read it in my forties, you know, I hope I don't, you know, empathize with, uh, Adrian, but, you know, but, but I think the book changes, uh, you know, every couple of years that you read it, it's a different experience. And I do think mm-hmm. that's a big part of its staying mm-hmm. power. I think Marcel made really two, two really incredible salient points that also speak to what Travis is saying. You, know, you say how incredibly well it's made. You know, uh, if you read uh, the, the book that, that Dave Gibbons uh, put out of his, you know, the breakdowns of Watchmen called it's called Watching the Watchmen. Actually, um, it's a big, big coffee table sized book. But he talks about how he and Alan Moore like spent almost six months just creating that world. You know, just yeah, setting the table for telling the story and that's something that comes through again into the quality of it. Um, I think part of the reason Snyder is, you know, can't see the forest for the trees take doesn't really work as well is because it's such a statement about comic books that it almost loses something by not being a statement about comic book movies in turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make, make sense or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you, you also say, you know, um, Travis, you're rereading it and Marcel, uh, being of its time, um, very much so, you know, the Reagan era and, and the Tories and everything going on in, uh, in that time period. And something I really appreciate about the, the TV series going on now to kind of tie a bow around everything, it's kind of taking uh, um, uh, problems, uh, social issues that are more salient to us now. Uh, yeah. that, uh, and, and portraying them in that world with that, with that tablet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, I think it also helps that they weren't trying to make it appear at 80, 1985 period piece. It was just, it was present day, you know, slightly alternate history mm-hmm. that, you know, affected the, the present day, but it wasn't trying to be set in the seventies or mm-hmm. it wasn't trying to be a period Which, piece. I, I mean, so. I think when, and he did the right thing. I'll, I'll, I'll praise Snyder here. When pra- when Snyder made the movie, is it 2009? Is that the film? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When, when Snyder makes the film in 2009, he sets it in the eighties because he's trying to be faithful to it. But you have to remember when Moore and Gibbons wrote it, they weren't making a period piece. They were writing, right. uh, They were writing about their world right then. It is very, the narrative of Watchmen is very, very entrenched in 1985 through, you know, I should say 1980s because, you know, 80-ish through 87-ish. Uh, Reagan era politics is what that story is about. Even though Reagan's not the president during the book, it is very, very much a look at here's what the world of both, um, of both Reaganomics era conservative, conservatism and neoliberalism look like in that time period. That's, I mean, it, it is an, it very much encapsulates that. It very much encapsulates here are the anxieties that we have of the Vietnam War, which at that point is 15 years removed, you know, or, or, you know, or, 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 you know, we're not as done with Vietnam. Actually, arguably it's 10 years removed, you know, as we, as we would be in 2009 looking back or 2019. It's funny because as someone who was born, you know, I was born in 83. So I didn't, the Reagan stuff is kind of lost on me the first mm-hmm. time I read it because I don't have any experience or any, you know, comprehension of any mm-hmm. of that stuff. Whereas, you know, the Vietnam stuff is, is slightly easier as a concept to understand because I've, I've seen more, you know, Vietnam stuff in media. Right. At that point, we don't typically look know? back on mm-hmm. stuff till like 20 yeah. years later. So like right, right now right, we've got a lot of right. 80s nostalgia because it's, you know, it's been 20, 30 yeah. years. Yeah. And I think that, you know, and it, you know, Moore is doing this thing in 85, 86, where he's really kind of looking nostalgically at a time that for him is very present right then and there. And mm-hmm. I, I'm saying nostalgically, but not always, not always in a fun. No. Yeah. There's a lot of, Here's what it was like. Right. It ain't also good is, uh, is a lot of what he's doing. Well, Mav, you know, I was just going to say, I think it's very fortuitous that you use the word nostalgia because, you know, that's very prominent. Yeah. 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 Source material. Yeah. Um, and and it, it's sort it's prominent, literally like the way they use perfume and, mm-hmm. and things. But when you look at it, like with all the cutaways and the flashbacks and things, it is literally a work of nostalgia. And I think that's something oh, that yeah. can be applied to the to the, the current TV series as well, because mm-hmm. they're doing much the same thing. And the uh, film, and by, the, by the way, because true. I will say I will say again, I hated the film when it first came out. I, I um, when it first came out, I figured I was and I, I tried to go in so cautiously. I was like, OK, this is not going to be I, I remember talking to um, Wayne and Marcel and um, our friend, another friend of ours, Jamil, who's not, never been on the show. But I remember talking to um, the three of you going, OK, this cannot be the thing that I have been dreaming of 
for 25 years. It cannot be that. So <laughs> keep your expectations low, keep your expectations low. And I went in and it just, it was so not what I wanted it to be that I hated it. Now, having had a decade, there's a lot of stuff where I think it's interesting. I don't hate it as much. I will say, for instance, the choice to take out most of the Minutemen stuff was one of the things I, I initially hated. And I still kind of wish more of it was there. However, I get it. That I get why he did it. And the opening montage where he's like, I'm going to compress all of the Minutemen things into this times we are a change in music video. It is the most brilliant thing Zack Snyder has ever shot in his entire career. It is is the only good part of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) It is absolutely (laughs) the most impressive thing he has ever shot is that three minute opening sequence. And I was just like, wow. (laughs) And I'm, I'm, and I'm not as hard on him as other people are. Uh, You know, I, I make fun of him a lot because, you know, it's fun too. <laughs> but um <laughs> you're talking but, uh, about me. Yeah. But um but yeah, it's I I th- I think that 3 minutes is like okay, you are without showing me a whole hour and a half long Minutemen movie which you would need to do in order to really get it cuz Watchmen probably would have made a better mini series even if they'd done the original story than a movie. But he gave me everything I needed from the Minutemen in that three minutes, I think. Well, the odd thing is, originally when it was shot before, I mean, way, way back uh, in the 90s at some point, Terry Gilliam was trying to shop it as a 12-part miniseries. And I think I would have been better served. But I mean, even then, like you said, the time shift would have really affected the story. But I mean, I've had I've had uh, talks with uh, with uh, Wayne and Marcel about how 1986 is probably the best year of comics yeah. um, of all time. And so, yeah, I think that what he did there, best thing he ever filmed easily. I mean, I, I, I like it. I think I learned everything that I needed to know that I had to know about the Minutemen in that three minute montage, even if I would have liked it better another way. Well, now, thanks to the TV show, you get more minute. Yeah. And well, but see, but I'm seeing different men. And that's that's the weird thing, right? Like it's it's how much do and we've talked about this on the show before, too. Like the idea of, you know, do we need a sequel? Do we need a prequel? We, we never need anything. Part of me is a geek. I really wanted to see what I saw, what I read in the 80s, you know, so that's just because, you know, you dream about it for so long, but I didn't necessarily want to see more of Hooded Justice. I wanted to see exactly that Hooded Justice I got. And then Snyder tried to give me exactly what I got. And I find, and I discovered, oh, no, I'm wrong. That's not what I want. What I want is, you know, to be taught to think about that. And that's what I like about this TV show. This TV show is making me think about the thematic idea of Watchmen more so than the story of Watchmen. Well, yeah. if there was ever something that no matter how many times I read, Watchmen never changes. It's how annoyed I am at the portrayal of Lori mm-hmm. and how, I mean, I, I think that actually <laughs> yeah. the third episode of Watchmen, and this isn't really a spoiler, like really gets at how I feel in that uh, the character of Lori, Lori returns um, as an older version um, of the mm-hmm. character we meet in the comics. And she is um, played by Jean Smart and she's great. <laughs> But, you know, like in in the comic books, like when people like list off the interesting characters, they always talk about Dr. Manhattan or the comedian or Rorschach or like Ozymandias. Anybody other than Laurie. uh, Yeah, exactly. And like Damien Lindelof said something along the lines of, I felt like her story in particular was like one that was unfinished. I was like, well, yeah, duh. Like, um... (laughs) I mean, she's, she's clearly like the best person, but she like gets so little focus. And I, I just, you know, like there's so many ways you can analyze um, the betrayal of her character, which actually my students have done. Uh, 
Yeah, mine too. And I will also link in, I'll link in the show notes, um, a couple of, you know, we, we actually don't really do this very often, but there are a couple of, of academic text analyzing Watchmen. 12 minutes to midnight is one. And I don't remember what the other one is that I want to, but I'll, I'll link those in the show notes as uh, there's some essays that people have written about the, the portrayal of Lori in, in the series. And I think she's the most fascinating to analyze because Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that, you know, looking at the dichotomy of the feminist Lori versus the kept woman Lori, and she is both of those things. And very, in a very real way, I think, I do agree that, you know, you miss out on stuff, some stuff, but everything that I feel for, I think she is the most human and the most interesting in, in the book followed by Dan. Of the, of the prequel series that came out, the, the before yes. Watchmen series, hers was the best one. It's the good yeah. one. Hannah, have you have you read? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. sorry. I'm, just, I'm sorry, real quick. I would also add Darwin Cook's uh, yeah. Mad That was the point I was going to make. Is the two things you said you wanted, wanted to see a little more of? Mm-hmm. Those are the two best of the prequel yes. series. Absolutely. Everything else is awful. Um, Which I, Watchmen, I think there's a reason yeah. for yeah. that. There's a reason why the episode featuring Lori in Watchmen is really good, and there's Having not read it, I'm going to just guess. Uh, like part of the reason I think that the Lori prequel is probably really good is because it's pushing back on the original material in interesting ways. And not to say that like the material is all terrible because Watchmen is yeah. really great, but there mm-hmm. there's a lot more to be said yeah. about like mm-hmm. gender and especially like Lori's perspective that we mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. don't get yes. in the original. That's why I really like that moment in that third episode when you know the joke quote-unquote joke she's telling throughout the episode i'm the girl who threw the brick yeah well not even that it's the the line she says where she's like oh you didn't see me because i was standing behind those guys you know she's been here the whole time yeah Mm -hmm. you know that's that was really important and then uh just real quick the going through the movie you know she she was one of those characters that didn't have a lot to say you know we we didn't have much to to say about the performance about the character almost up until the end uh, until that sequence of her and john on mars and that's when i mean i just that's one of my favorite bits in the movie now just because of her performance of the the moment she realizes who her father is it's mm-hmm. it's just such an incredible performance and then you start to think about this character a lot a lot more and and it's unfortunate yeah how little they give her in yeah. the book and the movie I, you know I do, I do think part of alan moore's plan I, I think it was commentary on the way female characters had always been presented you know here's the fantastic four and sue storm is the girl here's the right. Avengers and yep. the wasp is the girl and you know justice league and wonder woman is the girl like the, the, the granger the yeah, yeah she, right like the, yeah, the one, job is to be the girl yeah the the one girl on the team the one woman on the team represents all women whereas there's a variety of men you know, with different personalities yeah. and different powers so i do think that was a conscious part on you know it's conscious on alan moore's part that he's commenting on that unfortunately it, it ended up falling into the same trap of she was the least developed character in it because yeah. that's what he was doing 
Yeah. And I also think that, I mean, so I think that much like a lot of other stuff that Snyder did, he falls in the trap of not really understanding that because I do think she's a commentary on that. I do think that's lost on a lot of people. I think it was lost mm-hmm. on Snyder. And so he took the character that was trying to be interesting in a world where women were not allowed to be interesting. And he turned her into a gratuitous sex symbol to look at. Um, I think that in the scene that Travis mentioned where Malin Ackerman puts in an amazing performance with very little to work with. I think she's fine. And then my other, but, but my problem with Lori, again, my favorite character in the book, um, but my problem with her in the movie can be summed up in the, the scene in the, in the owl cave is my least favorite scene in the movie because, because it ruins the film. It ruins her entire character. What ends up happening is in the book, she smokes. And she goes to light a cigarette from the cigarette lighter in the owl ship. And it's not a cigarette lighter. It's a flamethrower. And it's an honest mistake. And she sets a fire. In the movie, they didn't want her to smoke because good guys don't smoke. Only the comedian smokes. He's the only person in the movie who smokes. So she never smokes. So instead, she sees a button with fire on it in a, you know, in the owl ship in Archie. And she says, hey, maybe I'll press this. I wonder what it does. And she sets the fucking cave on fire because apparently she's a moron. And I hate that. I hate it so much because because there's no reason for her to press that other than Snyder knew that she had to set the cave on fire. And he didn't realize even the simple thing of how important it was for her to smoke. It's important for her to smoke so that she can have a relationship with her mother who hates that she yeah. smokes. That those are important little details that he didn't think he didn't know. So he just he just drops them. Um, and then I to contrast that and just to go back to before Watchmen, which again, Hannah, you should read. Um, not all of it, yeah, just all <laughs> all of it. just just the that Darwin one. Cook stuff should be yeah. required. Yeah. reading for I like well. See, and, and the Darwin Cook factor. stuff. The Darwin Cook stuff I love because because I love Darwin Cook. Like I don't actually, to be honest, it's the Minutemen story, the narrative of of the Minutemen book. Yeah, that's a that's a nice little comic book story. You know, I I like it. I don't think it adds much to the mythos, but it's a fun story. It's a fun story, and his artwork is amazing. The Silk Spectre story, what makes it work is it is very much in that world. And it, and of everything in the before Watchmen series, it's the one that didn't try to be Watchmen. It didn't. It's a story about Silk Spectre. It's a story about Lori. It's the only one uh, written by a woman as well. Amanda Connor, I believe. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. part of the reason why the TV show works is because even though Damien Lindelof's name is attached to it, he brought in a lot of women to like direct, produce, write, as well as people of color. Etc. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. gave Regina King, who is amazing. He gave her. Yeah, I mean, like they begin character. with the Tulsa massacre in the twenties, um, which a lot of people actually thought was an alternate history. Uh, so like, I mean, even no, <laughs> yeah. nope, that's real. And that's like, you know, and real. like, what what is so great yeah. about that? Even though it's upsetting to watch, is that a lot since a lot of people don't learn about it in school because it actually like you know has been erased from history purposefully is that you know it it does like remind people that hey yes like like been this existed and it affects us like to this day because the actions of that massacre are very much tied to like what's happening in present day Tulsa in the show so uh, Hannah I'm really glad mm-hmm. that you mentioned that aspect of what made this good because I'm going to say a couple I'm going to say about two three things they're going to loop back around and it's basically going to kind of all pertain to regarding Watchmen 
the original work is the greatest comic of all time. So when we talk about when we talk about the accomplishment, like the, the virtuoso artistic accomplishment of the original work by these two creators, Moore and Gibbons. And it was, I mean, you can't take that away from it. You can't strip it away no matter what. You can critique it. You can do whatever you want, but it's a great work. But, you know, what do great authors do? And then when I say authors, I'm including both of them. What do great authors do? You write about what you know. And these were two white Englishmen writing about their perception mm-hmm. of America. And they talked about, it. you know, I just read a quote mm-hmm. where we're more... I think it was even more worrying. It was one of the two said how this was, you know, this was meant to show America to some degree what it looked like from the outside. And when you look, when yes, you, Gibbon says yeah. that too. Gibbon says that in watching the Watchmen sure. in his book. And when you look at, when you reread it, of course, that's what that is. And when you look at, when you think of what was going on at that time in America, what was the most explosive thing that America represented? If you were looking at it from the outside in at that time, well, it would have been, you know, the threat of nuclear war. And that, that, that book represents that. And they were, like I said, white English men writing about what they knew, which is white men predominantly. And, and again, that doesn't take away from their ability or their, you know, what they were doing, but that's just a fact. Now you jump ahead to this Watchmen series and what, once, once we got over the, is it a sequel? Is it a remix? It is whatever. Personally, I wish they just would have stopped being so pretentious about it. It's a sequel. Yeah, I, in my mind, it's just a sequel. Mm-hmm. There's there's the novel yeah. Scarlet that was written as a sequel to Margaret Mitchell's original Gone mm-hmm. with the Wind, and then in the yeah. there are many right. sequels to Gone right. with the Wind. And, you know and, and people and playing just, in that world. It's a sequel. <laughs> it doesn't matter that we jump ahead in time. It doesn't even matter that it jumped. You know, uh, uh, media. It's a sequel. So we get Watchmen, the TV series. Now, th- but this voice is going. I'm going to say, and it's more authentic to America because these the voices that are telling this thing come from the inside. And when you look at the present day America and what is the most explosive thing we could be dealing with, of course, it's race. So and it's race and it's gender and it deals with it directly. And I had mentioned, you know, the regard that we have for Watchmen, the original, the original series as the greatest comic of all time. I'm going to push back on that to some degree, like in terms of what it does, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of its structure and the way it works with comics. Sure. But I just mm-hmm. read a, a, an interesting piece where, and, you know, I'm a comics guy. I'm not a sports guy, but this was about Tom Brady. <laughs> and it, the question was, is, Ooh, is sorry. Brady, <laughs> the question was, <laughs> not, not natural. Probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the question was, is Tom Brady the best quarterback of all time? This, this, somebody wrote a brilliant response, which was, it was no. And he gave all these criteria, which were, it goes beyond just stats. You have to look at what was this person accomplishing, you know, in a greater context. And what, what, if you took that person, you look at what they did, would they have been able to do it? You know, if more things, if there had been more things preventing them from doing it. In other words, he was saying how Tom Brady had all of these things lined up and to enable him to be so great. But he, you know, he plucked other people. He, he mentioned Michael Jordan and Muhammad Ali and even in, in football, Peyton Manning, people who were great with other obstacles preventing them from being great. And yet they were still great. So is Watchmen the greatest comic of all time? Ultimately, I would vote no. I would vote for the Montgomery it's, story yeah. because it's arguably the most important, but it probably isn't really. I, the even, I have books I that I like call more. It the most important. I would call the Montgomery really? story okay. the most important okay. because Watchmen, while it advanced what we do in comics, to some degree, that's kind of a masturbatory way of thinking. Like, okay, that's great that it advanced comics, Fair enough. The, but the Montgomery story that actually helped to change our real world. world. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. John yeah. Lewis mm-hmm. has gone on record saying, 
he, you know, part of his yeah, involvement in the civil rights movement was because of that comic book. So it, uh, you should tell Marcel, you should tell people what that is. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are sure. like, what? Okay. So, so the, Montgomery it, story. It's a comic quick. book called uh, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. And it's a short comic. It's, it's 24 pages. 16 pages. Yeah, best. And it was, is it six, I, was I thought it was 20, but it's mm-hmm. short. Yeah. It was produced yeah. in 1957. And it was basically a primer on nonviolent resistance, specifically pertaining to the, to, uh, the civil rights boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. And it, mm-hmm. it literally instructed people what to do if they joined mm-hmm. that civil rights movement. So you took this mm-hmm. comic, you read it, you learned it, you memorized it, and you were instructed to throw it away so your life wouldn't be in jeopardy if you were found with yes. it. So mm-hmm. when we say, you know, what's the greatest comic of all time? If we're just talking about like its influence on comics, well, sure, I'll, I'd vote Watchmen. But if we're talking about a mm-hmm. book that actually influenced the world, I vote for the Montgomery right. story. And, in the, in the- and by the world, just so, so again, it's the book itself, very specific to this very specific moment for Martin Luther King in America, specifically in Montgomery, Alabama. However, this story, I believe, has been reprinted in something like 60 languages. Mm-hmm. It has been shipped yeah. all over the world, often given away for domain. free. It is, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it is. Public domain, you can download it. Yeah, this is, how, and I'll link it in the show notes too, just because it's relevant. It, this is a, this is basically 20 pages on how to stage a nonviolent yeah. protest. And I, and I have, I feel like I'm, I'm indebted to bring that up. Because as Hannah also mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, Watchmen, the, the, the TV show, it starts with the Tulsa riots, which is such a surreal thing to see. You would just you, it actually kind of makes sense that if you're not familiar with the story, you would think that it's an invention, invention of the Watchmen mm-hmm. world. But, but as we know, it is real. And, mm-hmm. you know, our fictions have a way of obscuring the truth. And one of the reasons why I have to assert that the Montgomery story is the greatest comic of all time. It's, it's kind of that, you know, like it's mm-hmm. great that Watchmen exists. I love it. And this show I think is running on all cylinders, you know, like it, it just, it's doing all the right things. It's only three episodes in, but I think it's doing it all correct. Mm-hmm. But it, this forces us to kind of dial back. What are we focusing on as true greatness, which, you mm-hmm. know, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's maybe one of the themes of the show. So I think it's fair for us to kind of revisit well, that. Well, I think, I think what makes it interesting to go back to the Tulsa riot thing and, and here's the difference between Montgomery and Tulsa, right? Uh, we have listeners all over the world, but the more or less um, our American listener base is going to know that, that Montgomery, Alabama was a thing. You're going to know who Martin Luther King was. Um, and that is a story that you get told to some extent or another, depending on where in America you grow up. But you learn at least a little bit about Martin Luther King in elementary school. You, you, you know who he is as a person. Tulsa was, as Hannah said, intentionally erased sure. from the history books. So much so that when um, I was talking about, um, there's no, nothing I can link to, but in a you know private Facebook conversation with some friends who are not necessarily comic book people and certainly not African-American history scholars, um, but they, oh my God, this show was great, you know, in the first, the couple of days after that first episode. And a friend of mine says, I didn't really get when they were, when they, because we were talking about the Tulsa riot and he's like, I don't, how are we supposed to ex- expect that, you know, are we supposed to believe that the government, right, or, you know, where did those planes come from? Are those just local guys crop dusting? Are we supposed to expect that they send in planes and they bombed this place? I, I didn't really understand that. How are we supposed to read that? 
So I just like I, my response was uh, HTTP Wikipedia dot org slash Tulsa. Right. And I just like and, sure. and, and then his response was, holy shit, that's real. And I was like, yeah. But and he's like, oh, I just thought that was part of the, you know, like there's not really a giant blue guy either. You know, and I was like, nope, mm-hmm. that's a real thing. And so. Um, and I've, I mean, I've actually listened to both Jim and, and Travis, both of you guys have mentioned on that episode of your own shows. Um, some of you, uh, in fact, uh, on Jim, on your show, you had like six people, Travis, it's just two, but some people knew it was real and some people did not. And, but you guys all know now after that episode. So, I mean, it's doing yeah. some important mm-hmm. work there, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the most important things that this show can do is to inform people and to use the real world examples to, you know, I mean, just first and second episodes. I didn't know that Germany was trying to sway people to come over, you know, the, the African-American soldiers they were trying to bring over to the German side. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And having listened to Damon Lindelof's little, uh, uh, podcast, the, the official Watchmen podcast, you know, he talks about how the leaflets that they were dropping out of the planes over, over there were verbatim were word for word, you know, historically accurate. They didn't change a single thing. So it, I didn't know that, you know, it, it's unfortunate that, that I didn't know about the Tulsa massacre until this show, but I'll never forget it now. <laughs> so success story, right? And, and I mean, that's the power, not just comics or even not just Watchmen. It's just, uh, I mean, that's why we have media. It's why, it's why, you know, thinky prestige shows are important to an extent, I suppose. I think the smart thing this, this show is doing is as much as Watchmen was about the Cold War, uh, this is about, you know, uh, race and about the social issues and about the police in sure. particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, the very first mm-hmm. scene in the very first episode is a black cop pulling over a white mm-hmm. guy who is terrified to be caught, you know, as part of this white supremacist group. He's listening um, to rap it's, when it's, he gets pulled over. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Ironically enough. It's um I think it's really cool they're using the tools that kind of like that sandbox that, that Gibbons and more created and extrapolating and coming up with this great way for it to be relevant to issues that are more relevant to us now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean like the, the, the police brutality aspect of the show is really interesting because they're fighting white supremacy, but they're also using like fascist tech- tactics. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. And you know, there, I mean, there's a lot of blood <laughs> seeping out uh, the door <laughs> of the first episode when yeah. um, Regina King's character, um, sister Knight, is Rorschach's the guy. Yeah. Well, and actually, this is what I want to talk about about Watchmen in all of its forms. Um, that I think is really interesting. Um, and again, I, after the first episode, I I went and I think I subscribed to literally six or uh, including the two um, Travis and and, uh, and Jim's podcast. I, I subscribed to like four other ones just to see what people's outtakes were. So I spent. Um, spent the week after the first episode of Watchmen <laughs> just listening to people's takes on it and it's interesting and there's a there's a vast variety of takes and some of them are 
or what I've heard just about the story in general and about the comics industry in general. One of the biggest complaints, um, Hannah and I, we've talked about this at length before where people do this. Well, I don't want to have politics in my comic books. And it's like, just fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's, um, but I've seen people, I don't want to have politics. Why did they have to make Watchmen political? Why did they have to make, you know, Rorschach? And I'm like, did you not understand wow. the book that you read the first time? Did you not? I mean, I, and I get that <laughs> to a lot of people, I guess it's just a book about cool superheroes. And they're like, I just want to be able to enjoy this. And I'm like, you can enjoy a lot of stuff. I think, I think everything's political. Cause you know, like, frankly, I'm a cultural theorist and my, career depends on it but uh, but but like watchmen is blatantly political it's about mm-hmm. reagan era politics that's what it is without that there's no story right. so we, like, we see it, we see a question at my restaurant a lot you know people would come in and say the fish is it fishy <laughs> yeah and that's how i feel when i see people who say you know keep politics out of my watchmen i'm like what? <laughs> yeah. what is the fish taste fishy uh yeah it's fish mm-hmm. you know I just right. I, I'm sorry. Please continue. Well, no, it's just a, it's just a crazy thing that I don't like. I understand how you might, depending on what your personal politics are, you might interpret Rorschach as a good guy. I guess. Um, and I, I, one of the one of the criticisms I've heard a lot is, um, in fact, this is actually valid. I've heard people say stuff like, "Well, what the story is of the TV show is we're looking at." a bunch of white supremacists who got their hands on Rorschach's journal and they misunderstood it just like people are doing in real life. And they, and they've become, you know, they've become even worse. They've become the white supremacists. And my reading on that is a little different. I don't think they misunderstood Rorschach's journal. Mm. I think Rorschach was an asshole. <laughs> like <laughs> Rorschach, was, and, and yeah, Rorschach was a racist. He was a misogynist. A misogynist. Yes. He was a misogynist. Yeah. He was anti-gay. He happened to be right this time because he's always a conspiracy theorist. And there, mm-hmm. in this one time, there really there was a conspiracy. <laughs> so he happened yeah. to be right. But mostly he gets there on accident. Dan does most of the work and Lori saves the day until, you know, like, like there's Rorschach happens into this thing and then he dies because he's unwilling to, oh my God, I was right on my conspiracy. I have to tell everybody. And John's like, do you, do you really? (laughs) Yes, I do. All right, fine. You're dead. Okay. So, but that's the story. The story is about the story of Watchmen was always about political ideologies at war. Comedian is a nationalist. That's what he is. That's the, the, the that's the character. Rorschach's, Rorschach's inability to compromise leads to death. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> now, um, Wayne, wasn't Rorschach like kind of a riff on um, like Ditko's objectivist politics? Like, yes. Oh, like yeah, Mr. Yeah, a and yeah. stuff. Yeah. It, the question of Mr. A. Yeah. yeah. It, and, and that's it. The whole black and white objectivist philosophy. Yeah. He is directly a reference. I mean, the character, the Charlton character that Moore is basing Rorschach on is called The Question. And he is, but very much so this is deep comic book lore uh, the personality of Rorschach and Rorschach's philosophy is more driven from Mr. A which is a separate Ditko yeah. comic book and Moore does not like Ditko yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the, Miss, the Mr. A character had a, a card with him that was half black half white yeah he is right. yeah, he is very much riffing off that story and he and and not in Moore's mind and again author dead listen to our old show about it so it doesn't necessarily matter what Moore thought 
But Moore wrote that character explicitly to be, you know, if you are an objectivist, which is the philosophy that Mr. A and Steve Ditko believed in, if you are an objectivist, you are wrong. That is that was Moore's belief. Like he fundamentally, I mean, and, and I'm not interpreting that in the documentary where he's interviewed, Moore says that. He's like, this is a stupid philosophy. He believes that. So that's why he was so offended when people were like, oh, this character is just like me. And he's like, what's wrong with you? Now, I don't think the world is cut in, you know, black and white <laughs> as Moore does. Like, I think that maybe you could be an okay person and like this. And you could go for the they misinterpreted Rorschach's journal, you know, theory. Long as you understand that Rorschach's journal, even if you are okay with the misogyny and the racism, Rorschach's journal would be really easy to misinterpret because he's a misogynist and a racist. He says so, you know, he's and, and he's delusional. He's a crazy person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just got to I was talking over there. Well, and you know, when I saw when I saw the trailers for the TV show, it, there was the whole. I thought they were riffing on another Alan Moore property. We saw all these people in masks, and V for Vendetta. The sense of, yeah, yeah, V for Vendetta. I, you know, I was seeing. Oh, this is the riff on the guy Fox Mask has become yeah. a part of society. You know, anonymous. Here's this group of of people out there who are utilizing this mask. And that might still play a part in the creation of this, but I, I didn't get, I didn't sense the racism from the the trailers. Um, yeah, I think I know exactly what you mean. I, I uh, V for Vendetta whole thing. That's been how the way that's been adopted. Mm. You know, I think is definitely what they were going for with the uh, including it. Yeah, here in the series, and I, I, I was surprised too. Well, you know, even seeing that first trailer, it's like, oh, this is going to be about white supremacy. Like, how does that, you know, work with Watchmen? But like, mm -hmm. you know, my first initial reaction. But then it's like, yeah, it does make sense. You know, the more you think about it and stuff. But uh, initially, it was kind of a surprise. But um, when when Damian Lindelof wrote his like yeah. long letter, um, <laughs> which. I, which I like and find charming. Mm -hmm. Um, and some people have rolled their eyes at probably Alan Moore. Um, I, I can, without asking him, I can guarantee you that Alan Moore wrote his eyes. Uh, but in that letter, when he finally like finishes his biography and like what Watchmen means to him, he says that like the show needed to be contemporary. And that was part of the reason why it was worth doing. And as we've said before, like wh what are the big issues that are defining America and have defined America that they are in the background of the original Watchmen, mm -hmm. as we've kind of talked mm -hmm. about, but you might blink and miss them if you're looking for, you know, the actiony stuff. And they're like, I mean, the Cold War is clearly like the big political set piece mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And well, I mean, and I think that's, you know, maybe that's the thing, because if the first Watchmen is about the Cold War, um, playing the Cold War against, I mean, I, I think what's make what's interesting about that first series is we've got a story. We've got a world where there is one Superman and he is American, you know, <laughs> and um, so America can just win Vietnam. You know, we can we can just win. We're just, we'll just go in there, sweep it up, take it two weeks. No problem. And so America becomes this world power. And this is Moore and Gibbons making the statement that an ideological war 
is harder to win than a physical war. So it becomes about, well, the Cold War still exists and maybe it's being fought on this, you know, alternate terms. And, you know, is Adrian right or not? Adrian's not right, but he is. And it's great. It's dark. And, you know, you know like, the you know, these perfect, these no ideology is perfect. John's not perfect with his with his pure logic. You know, Rorschach's not perfect with his objectivism. Adrian, Adrian's not perfect with his neoliberalism. Like none of them are perfect. Um, comedians are not. Nazi. He's definitely not perfect. He's, well, he's a nationalist. Um, I I understand that. So maybe this is about, you know, this new series is about the ideological war that we have now, which is, you know, not just our war on terror, because like that's black and white. That would have been easy. But we're talking about things like what is the place of police violence? What are we, you know, even statements? I, I thought the most fascinating thing from that first episode was the police's gun, the guns are on lockdown until mm. until like they are authorized that's brilliant and just to mm. even even to just like sort of talk about that as a concept for the 30 seconds of which it matters for that it, for that episode is interesting to me i was i was intrigued by along those lines with that I, th- that officer's reaction and then later on when we see them gathered uh, to the character of panda and i'm curious I'm wondering if we're going mm-hmm. to get any backstory or a flashback or something that pertains to that character because he's vocal about not wanting, you know, that there's like a, what is it? The 24 mm-hmm. hour release of where they just, they have access to the, to the guns. And I, I was just, it's, mm-hmm. it's not quite a throwaway, but it happens in passing with the rest of the story. And I'm curious what, what leads to that character's stance? Like, and, and in that world, is that mm-hmm. why they want him mm-hmm. in that role? You know, it, because it makes sense to me. If mm-hmm. if guns are under lockdown, if they have to, be, if officers have to be given permission to use them, wouldn't you want somebody who's not? You want the biggest stickler for yep. the rules that you can find. Mm-hmm. I want to know more. About that. Yeah, Amanda mm-hmm. is the one who watches the watchers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and being black True. and white, it's a cuter version of the Rorschach philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> which I, which I thought was I, I thought was great. I actually, I want to you know not just we talked a bunch about the TV show, but and I know it's not going to be maybe not as popular with our audience, but we talked a little bit about before Watchmen. There's also Doomsday Clock. I think there's a lot of weird supplemental material. I said the culture of Watchmen. I think mm-hmm. Doomsday Clock's been, <laughs> I think it's been very, I think it's been exactly half interesting. It's very slow is what it has been. And, and for our listeners who perhaps are not Watchmen yeah. people, what is Doomsday Clock? Doomsday Clock is a 12 issue series coming from DC, wherein they are integrating the Watchmen characters into the DC universe proper, uh, essentially blaming Dr. Manhattan for all their continuity fuck ups <laughs> in the last 15 years. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how they promoted all it. But, um, yeah, it's not far <laughs> off. <laughs> um, so, so that's been coming out. It, it started the May before last. It was a 12 issue series. It was supposed to be mm-hmm. monthly. We're still waiting for the last issue. Um, there is one issue left. And yeah, like, like Mav says, I, Reading it as it's coming out, you know, I have completely lost the thread of what's going on in in terms of the plot. In any given issue, there are things I find interesting. I can narrow it down real easy. Um, Every, everything I, that has everything that has yeah, like, anything to do with DC Universe or anything pre-established, I don't give a shit at all. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of where I am. Uh, um, the, the Doctor Manhattan issue I thought was really good. Doctor Man, the, the issue that issue focused 10. directly on Doctor Manhattan was really good. The issue I want to say two or three focuses directly on Adrian, really good. 
there's an issue. I want to say five. Um, see, it's, it's been so yeah. hard because with the original Watchmen, I can tell you exactly what happens in each of the yeah. 12 issues because yep. I've read it. I've read it without exaggeration mm-hmm. over a hundred times. Um, I now to be fair, I teach it. So yeah. <laughs> a lot. Um, but also I'm just a geek. Um, <laughs> I cannot do, I cannot remember for sure what happens in each issue of doomsday clock, but I will say there is one issue and I think possibly the best story in it focuses on the mime and the marionette who are two characters invented just for this series. Mm-hmm. They're not DC characters. Oh, they are based they on are, Charlton characters. They're, they're based on Charlton characters. Julie. Mm-hmm. And they are characters invented for this series from the Watchmen universe that we just happen to have never seen before. And they seamlessly and flawlessly feel like they belong in that universe. I am so happy with everything that happened in that one issue. And then after they had their sort of origin story issue, um, the book fell behind and I think they've forgotten that they were in the story. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, I, I bailed on, on doomsday clock after the third issue. Um, I'm still collecting each, you know, each issue at my uh, local store and I'll read the whole thing as one piece mm-hmm. you know once it's all in one big trade that's how i read yeah. watchmen that's how i'll read doomsday clock because i it's not going to be it, as tight just, there's another problem in it that like so the content one of the things that's amazing yeah. about the original series is the continuity and the care that's taken to make every piece fit together um oh, and that's also at least so far three episodes in so when this when this podcast drops there'll be four episodes of the tv show out as we're recording it there are only three so for the listeners that's why we keep saying that um so far far everything's fit together amazingly on this in doomsday clock it's so late that you can tell and you're gonna agree with this i know you can tell that in issue 11 something happens that makes no sense it happens because over the course of the year late that it is it was supposed to be a 12 issue series and we're now more than two years into something that was supposed to be monthly um the status quo of the dc universe changed around them so they had to adjust story and a character disappears in a flash of retcon. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 to their credit, they kind of address that this is happening in a flash of retcon. There's sort of a metal level there, but it still felt like, it's well, stupid. shit. Yeah. Th- this, yeah. It's stupid. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it, no, poor I, planning. It, I, mean, yeah. I don't know. It wouldn't have been poor planning had the book come out on time. Mm hmm. Um, oh, but sure. because it took yeah. so long to get this done, this story arc no longer fits yeah. the universe they're being integrated into because the universe mm-hmm. moved on. So my point was, I think they're doing something interesting in that the stuff that's worked about it, what, the things that I think work about everything, where I think the Snyder movie fails, where I think most of before Watchmen fails is when people try to catch lightning in a bottle and they try to say, I'm going to do that ball and more stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get me that it's going to do exactly that. Where I think Amanda Connor succeeded with Silk Spectre before Watchmen, where I think Minutemen before Watchmen succeeds and where I think this new series succeeds is you do, I'm going to play in this world and I'm going to tell a story thematically like this, which deals with my own issue that I want to address. What, you know what Silk Spectre is about? Silk Spectre is about being a 16 year old girl and rebelling against your mother. She happens to be a superhero, but it is a story about Lori and it enriches the Lori Sally relationship 
it does not deal with, you know, there are a couple of Easter eggs. Like I think the very last page is the first meeting of the crime busters, yeah. which is, so it's essentially redrawing that first panel where she's standing next to Doc Manhattan and, and Dan and Ozzy. And, you know, she meets them all for the first time, but the mo- most of the story is just about a 16 year old girl running away from home and, you know, and hanging out with other teenagers. Yeah. Yep. Having problems in, in so, school. Yeah. So I think, I don't know. It's a, it's a rich and interesting universe that was created. It's, and therefore fun to play in. But when, when you take it too literally, maybe that's where it starts falling mm-hmm. apart. Well, it's, it's in spite of Alan Moore's protests against people doing anything with it. It's a story that has, you know, tremendous heuristic value. People are invested in it. It prompts lots of ideas because it prompts those more ideas. People want to continue to play with those characters and those ideas in their own way. Um, and yeah, that just, that's, that's part of the nature of any, I think, good, good art is it the conversation continues beyond the life of the original. I'd be really curious to to know what Alan Moore would think about the HBO series. He hated I mean, I know he'll, I, I don't know because I know the, the whole, you know, <laughs> I'll never watch a, a work based on my work. I think a lot of that is just, it, it's mm. something he said mm. and he said many times. And I think he mm-hmm. is just kind of held to that, you know, and I think because of the the, the things that the HBO series touch on, touches on the, the Tulsa stuff, the, the World War One stuff, I, I'd be really interested if he would watch that mm-hmm. and say, you know, yeah, this is valid. This should be told. The story should be told. And if it is, you know, wrapped in a, a Watchmen burrito shell then all the better i don't have much faith in him i'm a huge fan i don't have that much faith in him (laughs) i yeah i just to me it's that's something that he said 30 years ago yeah uh, and 20 and 10 times he said he says it a lot he's weird about it and uh, i I guess i haven't checked in on alan more that 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 recent so i haven't heard like if he's still carrying that torch read the entirety of jerusalem um Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, he, 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 uh, I'm he, out. I'm not. No, not me. <laughs> quite the madman. Uh, okay. Well, and, you know, and I mean, part gotcha. of the premise of Jerusalem, and this shows up in his other work as well, is that you know, he, he's a firm believer that all time exists at once. That everything is. You know, there, there really isn't free will. We have the illusion of it, but everything that has ever happened has already happened, and we're just following along that pathway. So, given I too have read Prometheus, yeah, yeah, which right. is- <laughs> and, and the thing is, given that idea, is, is he's doing what he's doing and, and rejecting this stuff because that's what has always happened and that's all time. But mm-hmm. by the same token, he could sit down and watch the Watchmen movie tomorrow, and that also is something that's already happened. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad you said that, Wayne, because. You know what? I mean, that's we can look at. I, you know, we what do we say about you know art mm-hmm. reflecting life and and you know, but I, I, I think you know if art reflects life, I think great art also calls from sure. life. And if you look at Watchmen, you know, it's nothing. No matter how great is a perfect work, so it can't be a perfect work, but it's a damn mm-hmm. fine work. And there's all of these these reflections of you know the a very the real very real human condition like you know nobody's perfect so people characters who are air quotes good mm-hmm. we see their flaws and characters who are air quotes bad we see the parts of them that are if not good at least accessible and we can relate to so 
we we get to see characters who are completely intractable. They will not change. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's Rorschach, you know, like this is mm-hmm. this thing. Yeah. Although I'd say even Rorschach, you know, you read that narrative, he had a breaking point. He wasn't completely right. what he became until he hit that one point and then then he became intractable. But there are other characters who, you know, do change. I mean, in a sense you could even say that's one of the themes of the work as a whole. You know, the world needed this really really absurdly dramatic wake up call to change and it got it and it did or didn't i mean the story ends that's that's what i think it's interesting about so what i think it's interesting about watchmen watchmen proper the original novel is the world gets this interesting wake-up call and nothing ends adrian nothing ever ends except that it does that's the very end of the book and more would say that those characters only exist for those 12 chapters and they they came into existence the day you know on page one and they ended existence on page 244 or whatever it is right like that's what um that's what Moore would say. I think that because because you have this world where it didn't, you know, where you you know, did he save the world? I don't know. You know, Adrian says I did it, but the book ends. In in the we, TV series, he didn't really save the world. And he clearly didn't in Doomsday Clock. Well, but you know what? Regardless of if any any other media beyond the original mm-hmm. existed, I think Moore still ends up would end up being wrong if that's his position. And I say that as somebody, you know, who has created yeah. his own fair share of fictions and factions, because as, as if you've engaged your audience and those characters become real to Which them, clearly he's managed yeah. to do. For better or worse, he is absolutely mm-hmm. done. Then they, then their stories, then their stories don't end because they're gonna, they're gonna exist in other people's minds. Like you can't help but wonder. Hey, I wonder what happened next, and you might follow mm-hmm. that through. So, like, if there was never any other printed material or broadcast material, yeah. those characters, yeah. Well, and, and like, <laughs> his philosophy yeah. of everything that has ever happened or will ever happen has already happened means that whatever his protests are, these sequels were bound to happen based on his own philosophy. <laughs> uh, they, they, they had already happened when he wrote the book. <laughs> so there you go, Alan Moore. We've resolved We're nothing. nothing. <laughs> Neither of you. <laughs> uh, but I think it's I think it's a fun book to think about. I think yeah. the show is fun to think about. And I, I mean mm-hmm. it is I think what it, here's what we can resolve. We can resolve that if you have never read the book, go out and read Watchmen. If you're not watching this HBO show, go out Which and you, watch the HBO show. It's, the it's great. Do like yeah, you don't right. yeah, you like, don't. like yeah. it will, you will appreciate it. It, it helps. helps. But even yeah. people who have read yeah. the comic, I yeah. say because I go to a watch party every Sunday. Like some of them wrote like when the episodes like pilot like it's pilot starts. You're like, what? What's happening? Why? Why are we here? What are we doing? Uh, why? Why? Why are there twin? Yeah. Why is why there twin? Like like what? Like what yeah. happened to the characters we knew about? Because like you don't see Lori and or anyone really familiar until episode three. Yeah, you see three seconds of Doc Manhattan. Mm. Yeah, on Mars. Yeah, like <laughs> or, or do we? Yeah. Yeah, or, or, yeah. Or, 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 yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Lori gives yeah, like maybe. the backstory of the original Watchmen in a really clever way. But, and mm-hmm. the thing is, in 1985, 86, when that first issue came out, we were thrown into that world without any backstory. Mm-hmm. This is this is the same thing. You, you know, we didn't have yeah. anything to read to study up on to read Watchmen. We're thrown we're thrown into it, and we learned that world as we went along. 
I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'm going to go very, we've actually done a really good job of not spoiling anything from the TV show. So I'm going to give a very brief spoiler, uh, skip ahead 60 seconds. If you, uh, 60 seconds, two minutes, if you really, really care about spoilers. So in the first episode of Watchmen, the TV series, one of the main characters, Judd, is killed. And it's kind of shocking. When I, when it happens, I was just like, holy shit, didn't expect them to do that. And then I thought, wait a minute, comedian dies on page five. Yeah. 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 That's how you it's fucking make a Watchmen. It's a, it's a murder mystery. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, how, that's how Watchmen works. That's what makes it interesting. That's, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, when also, that, when, yeah. It seems so obvious once it happens. When, drip of, you know. when that drip of blood I, hits the back. I knew just, he was going to uh, die. Was really yeah. good Not because of Watchmen, but because they kept using Oklahoma, the oh. musical, so much. Um, and yeah. then I heard his name was Judd, and I thought to myself, mm, oh, yeah. I wonder if they're going to play Judd is Dead at some point in this episode. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it bodes well for this character. His name is Judd. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you know when I realized he was done when he was singing to the kids and he kissed everybody and loved it. Like I'm like, oh, he's yeah, that's when I gone. yeah. <laughs> I'm here. You're having too good a day, dude. Not in this world. Not in this world. Yeah, you can come back now. <laughs> but you know, there there've been so many there've been so many nuggets. I think this series, this TV series, much like the book, the true test of its greatness mm-hmm. is going to be when yeah. it's done and we get to revisit mm-hmm. it from the beginning again. Yeah. Because already I watched the first episode again after I'd seen the third, my girlfriend came <laughs> over and we watched it and I got to take, like I was picking mm-hmm. up on stuff that I hadn't noticed the first time and just things like foreshadowing and like, it's obvious that this thing, they knew what they were mm-hmm. doing the whole way through from the beginning. And when we get to rewatch it, mm-hmm. It's, we're going to see things and go, oh, wow, look at that. Mm-hmm. That was right there. And we just had no idea. Like, because like Wayne said, they just dropped us in without knowing. I will also put in a little plug for uh, they have that page. I don't EDPedia. know if you found it. Edipedia on HBO. <laughs> I love I that. I thought it was like I that was the thing that, that I thought, you know what? They know mm-hmm. what they know exactly what they're doing. And this is really cool, um, it, you know, because it takes the place of all that old supplementary material and it makes it contemporary because you know it's it's online of course it would be online so yeah it's it's, yeah. it's really, so i think we're it's, all it's good recommend well definitely recommending the book definitely recommending the tv show if you've only seen the movie maybe read the book too i mean you don't need to but you're going to get into the tv show and some stuff's going to be weird if you've only seen the movie some stuff's going to be a little weird yeah you'll you'll get by um, you could skip before Watchmen. <laughs> yeah. um but if you're a big fan go back and read minute men and silk Spectre. Yeah. Those are my recommendations. And yeah. um, like I, said, I, I will link in the show notes. I'll, I'll link a couple of, um, of essays. We'll link, a, we'll toss the link to PDPedia in there. Um, and absolutely, I'll toss the link to the Montgomery book. What else? Uh, you know what else we'll have links to? Um, Everybody else's podcast. Travis. Yeah. <laughs> Travis, tell us about your show. <laughs> Where can people find you? Um, so my, my first podcast you can find me on is Real Comic Heroes, and that's real with two E's. And over there, we chronologically go through a huge list of comic book movies. Um, we just review them one at a time. Uh, we started with uh, Superman and the Mole Men from 1951, and currently uh, we're up to... Uh, 1990, uh, we just talked about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Back to the Future 2 and 3 and uh, Dick Tracy we got coming up soon. So um, check that out. You can find it anywhere just by searching Real Comic Heroes. And then my other show, 
is Watchmen Minute, and you can find it everywhere just by searching Watchmen Minute. Uh, like I said earlier, we went through the director's cut of Zack Snyder's Watchmen one minute at a time, just trying to analyze the entire film for for all those delicious little nuggets. And Jim? If you go to hhwld.com, you can find our issue-by-issue issue breakdown of Watchmen, uh, as well as our uh, review of the movie. And our current uh, Watchmen series, uh, we watch Watchmen about the uh, HBO uh, series. Also at the Taylor Network of Podcasts.com, you can catch me weekly on Nothing's On, our look at uh, TV and movies and other media uh, every week. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty hilarious. Uh, so I've been told. I'm the guy who reads the news. So I'm the straight man. So uh, you know, everybody, everybody makes uh, gets the jokes uh, from at my expense. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, you can also check out oldmagicgaming.com. Uh, we play live D and D games on Twitch. And then we edit those down, those three or four hour sessions down to one hour bits with uh, background music and sound effects and all kinds of fun stuff to make it more like a radio play rather than just a bunch of people ruffling papers and talking. So that's littlemagicgaming.com. Thank you for having yeah, me on. Well, yeah, thank you for doing it. We'll link you both in the show notes. Uh, Marcel, what about you? I don't know. You can, you can just find me. It's <laughs> like me that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of true. I mean, really, I, I'm not so much online. Online, I've got my social media stuffs. My, you know, there's my Facebook, there's my Twitter, there's my Instagram, blah blah blah. But out here in the uh, in the tactile world, <laughs> um, you know, I work out the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. Uh, I am the project coordinator for our wonderful ongoing comic book series, Hutzpow superheroes of the holocaust where we tell the real life stories of holocaust heroes and survivors a number of whom uh settled here in pittsburgh after the holocaust and we are currently well into production on volume four which will focus on women's stories and every time we produce an issue we always say this but it's always true it's like it's going to be the best issue we've ever done so there's going to be more of that coming out and uh, i'm also still currently the board president of the Museum. Uh, Pittsburgh Museum of Comics and Cartoon Art. Uh, everybody always asks me, where's the Museum at? We do not have a physical home right now. That is something we are working back towards. We are looking back at our, our program. It's here in our hearts, and- Marcel. <laughs> it's here in our Thanks, hearts. Wanna- the Museum is actually the friends we made along the way. <laughs> oh, isn't that sweet? Well, you know, we want to have a place for everybody yeah. to convene, too. So... So stay tuned and you'll be having more, more, more announcements. All right. Palindrome Hannah. You can find me on Twitter at Hanley Rogers, where I am currently either tweeting or retweeting all the problems in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, that's always true. <laughs> Sadly. And palindrome Wayne. It's really a palindrome. It is not all a palindrome. <laughs> not, not, not in the slightest. Uh, I'm a mystery wrapped in an enigma. Hi. <laughs> You can't find me. Um, one day, one day. <laughs> I can find you. That sounds really creepy yeah. out of context. <laughs> Just like Watchmen. Oh. And you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or on my personal blog at www.chrismaverick.com. You can follow the show on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, all at Fox Popcast, on our blog at www.foxpopcast.com where we talk about what we're going to be talking about next week. We post blogs and we ask for comments and, you know, you can contribute to the show. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you did, because 
again, why are you listening if you don't? Um, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. Five-star reviews help people find the show, especially if you write something and, you know, direct people to it. And it makes us happy. And I need happiness because, you know, it's a dreary world, you know, and you're trapped in here with me. So <laughs> I would like... Um, Thank you. Um, and I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you at home for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. What do you seem to understand? I'm not locked in here with you. <laughs> You're locked in here with me! Yeah, well... It's my funeral. Quiz custodiat ipsos custodes? Roll on snare drum. Curtains. Good joke.